All right, I'd like to introduce Ken. I gave him an introduction earlier, but we're really glad to have him for his expertise. He's able to teach you a lot about the liver. Okay, thank you. So, uh, before we get into my talk, we did a random screening over the last two months working with our maternal fetal medicine people in, uh, in our clinic, and the early result is 6% of pregnant women who have C positive with virus. Are they testing everyone, or is... No, yeah. it's part of an experimental mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. thing. That IRB approval oh, okay. So, but it's a lot, much more than the general population. Okay, so this part of it is hepatology for the non-hepatologist. We're all going to become junior hepatologists in a short basically says that. Talk about progression of fibrosis, methods to stage fibrosis, make sure you know what decompensated liver disease is, and know when to call for help. At what point do you say, I shouldn't be doing this? So, by way of background, let's start with this. Um, injury to the liver from whatever cause causes inflammation, cell death, and the body responds to that by creating scar. And so scar, fibrosis, interchangeable terms, representing collagen deposition in the liver. And if you think forward to the accumulation of that scar, ultimately it is not, because patients often ask this, how much of my liver is left? That's irrelevant. Everything about liver disease is about alteration of blood flow through the liver. Um, at any given moment in time, um, every minute, about 30% of, of blood in the body flows through the liver. And, uh, and if that gets altered, the liver gets bypassed, and, and the complications of liver disease result in that bypass. So we're very concerned about scar in the liver. And today we're talking about hep C, and clearly hep C and other hepatitis viruses will do that. Uh, but there are other things that are out there. NASH is a big problem, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Uh, alcohol use is very common in our patients with hep C, and in fact in the general population. Uh, antiretroviral drugs can and will, in some settings, cause liver injury of various types. Um, patients have immune disorders that affect the liver. Um, things like hypervitaminosis A. Uh, people think that, oh, I ate a lot of carrots, or went to GNC and took a bunch of vitamins, and I'm doing great. And sometimes you can see those people looking a little orangey in their face. but. Uh, but in the liver, excess vitamin A tells stellate cells, the cells that make collagen, to turn on and start depositing collagen, making scar tissue. Um, and then inherited metabolic disorders are actually very common. At least 7% of the U.S. population carries a gene, at least one allele of a gene, for, any, for a number of common liver diseases and that puts those people at risk for 
for injury from other sources, it increases greatly the risk that they will develop sperm. Hepatologists, in a simplistic sense, think of the world of liver disease as injury is hepatocellular on one side, like viral hepatitis, cholestatic, meaning bile acids and bilirubin can't get out of the liver cell and into the bile ducts, or some sort of a mixed picture. And the markers of that are these liver enzymes, the serum transaminases, ALT and AST, are markers of hepatocellular injury, whereas bilirubin alpha and GGT are markers of cholestasis. Now, these things aren't mutually exclusive, because after a patient gets injury from an agent like viral hepatitis, they, uh, they regenerate liver cells that have been injured. Their initial injury has high levels of ALT and AST, but the connections between the regrowing hepatocytes and the bile ducts doesn't appear for weeks to even months. And so there is a post hepatitic cholestasis. When you see a patient at a given moment in time, you have to figure out where they're at in that spectrum. So they may look very cholestatic, meaning perhaps elevated bilirubin and elevated GGT and alpha-fos, and you're seeing the end stage of a hepatocellular process. We also throw out the words acute and chronic. And it's important to know that in liver disease, those are arbitrary and used by convention. When I started in hepatology, uh, we used one year as the dividing line between acute and chronic. But over the years, we learned more about primarily the viruses that cause an acute hepatitis and realized that the real dividing line is someplace around six months that you can effectively separate things that are going to get better as an acute process versus those that go on to a chronic disease that doesn't go away. So we use those terms, you'll hear them used today with in relation to talking about patients and when you treat and what you treat with and how long you treat, but uh, you should sort of keep in mind that there's nothing magical about it, it's, it's a continuum. The other thing you need to think about is levels of normal. And in this, it's important that you understand that the lab is not your friend. <laughs> the lab is not your friend because labs determine the little normals that you see on lab sheets by statistical methodologies. And, uh, and those methodologies actually only indirectly have anything to do with disease, not just liver disease, all kinds of diseases. So it actually took us until early 2000s before there was large enough studies to begin to really define the relationship of ALT to hepatitis C associated liver disease as well as other liver diseases. And regardless of what your lab tells you, the numbers you should take away from here today is an ALT for women greater than 19 and over 30 for men, that patient has liver disease. 
Now, why is that so important? Well, in my hospital, ALT normal is 45. So that's what your lab would tell you, which means that you could have a woman with chronic hepatitis C who is turning over liver cells, which ALT reflects, at twice the rate of normal, and that person might still be 38 and would be called normal, and you would never suspect that that person has a liver disease at all. So, I mean, this is sort of the underlying reason, or at least one of the underlying reasons why the CDC in 2013 said we should screen all baby boomers for hepatitis C. And now there are discussions about universal screening for hepatitis C, because relying on normals in your lab to pick out which patients should be screened is probably not a very efficient method of identifying patients. And that's what most clinicians do. Huh. They don't think about disease until the lab tells them there's a disease. Okay, so if a patient has a disease like hep C, we have to figure out how much scar or fibrosis is present in their liver and what else might be in there. So that's what we'll talk about in the next few minutes. A few underlying concepts. The type of injury determines the pattern of scar that we'll see. We'll see some examples of that. For most diseases, the distribution across the liver is homogeneous. Not exact. It's a, it's a random distribution and blood flow actually between the left lobe and the right lobe of the liver is a little different, which affects injury patterns. But overall, diffuse diseases occur diffusely. So you have everything happening everywhere. Inflammation, which is the result of immunologic response to virus appearing in the liver is a transient process, meaning that when the virus goes away, the inflammation dies down. But fibrosis doesn't quickly go away. It's plastic in the sense that, that you can remodel the scar in the liver, but that process actually takes years to occur. Most people you see with hep C who've been infected, say baby boomer who's in their 40, late 40s, early 50s, or beyond, those people have often been infected for 30 or more years to get to the stage of disease that they're at at the moment you see them. And if you stop the disease, if you cure the virus, that reversal process takes just about as long to occur. So we think most patients can reverse fibrosis but that doesn't happen overnight. Um, cirrhosis is a histologic diagnosis. And I'll show you exactly what that is in just a moment. It's a clinical diagnosis when a patient has signs and symptoms of end-stage liver disease, which are really signs and symptoms of portal hypertension. And in the United States, that actually is true in 70 to 75% of cases. But not every place in the world. That's why you can't make that direct association. If, if we were having this talk in the Nile River Valley, lots of patients get admitted to the hospital every night 
in all of the hospitals along the Nile River Valley for portal hypertension with bleeding varices, and very few of them actually have cirrhosis. They have portal hypertension due to schistosomiasis. So there's not a direct equivalence between end-stage liver disease and that patient has cirrhosis, yet people misuse that term all the time. When I write notes and I see a patient with advanced liver disease, I say patient with presumed cirrhosis until I have evidence otherwise that cirrhosis is indeed present. This is a schematic diagram of stages of fibrosis. We're going to look at actual liver biopsies on the next slide, but one thing I want you to be aware of is there are different staging systems. And it's not enough when talking about stages of liver disease to just throw a number on it. Oh, that patient has stage three. You need to know what system you're talking about because they're different. These numbers don't line up at all of the stages. And there's a lot of regional differences in which stage is used, particularly if you do have liver histology available. So Medivir is a European scoring system. One of my mentors, Kamal Ishak, has the Ishak scoring system, and that's widely used, uh, particularly up and down the East Coast, because he was in Washington, D.C. But if you're in the Midwest, actually the Botz-Ludwig system, which came from the Mayo Clinic, is used, and it's different. So even, you know, you need to know where you're at, who you're talking to, and it's often best to specify, this is patient has a Medivir stage, Two. Okay, so here are four liver biopsies. In general, pink is good, blue is bad, and blue, depending on one of two stains that are commonly used on a liver biopsy, blue represents either inflammatory cells or fibrosis or both. So, this is a normal liver biopsy, and we would call this a stage zero, a metavir stage zero biopsy. There's a tiny bit of blue, and that's because there's collagen matrix holding together the portal areas and the blood vessels. Um, with infection, you begin to get expansion of portal areas and chronic hep C, and these areas grow and start to get blue around them. And this is a metavir stage two patient because the portal areas are expanded. This is a Medivir stage 3 patient where we're getting bridges that are surrounding the unit of function of the liver called the liver lobule. So that's stage 3. Stage 4 is this, a liver lobule completely surrounded by scar. When you see that, the patient has cirrhosis. So this patient is a cirrhotic patient. Now, the problem is twofold. One, it's sometimes hard to differentiate this from this. And actually, portal hypertension, the vascular complications that result in development of liver disease in many patients start at this stage. So often we talk about advanced fibrosis cirrhosis, and we'll talk about that through the day. This patient is thought to have advanced fibrosis. 
because we can't tell and because of the implications of that, we generally lump those together, treat those clinically the same. But when we do that, we're talking about metavir stage three, bridging fibrosis and true cirrhosis. And why would you make those mistakes? Well, even on a liver biopsy, what if we only had this section here to look at in a microscope? A pathologist would call this metavir stage three, bridging fibrosis, because there's no complete liver lobule surrounded by scar. So sampling can affect the ability to make a correct diagnosis of cirrhosis. In liver histology, size matters, as with many things in life. Um, this is one of my liver biopsies. I'm very proud of it. I do big liver biopsies using big needles. This is samples that came from a national study looking at a drug to try and cause reversal of fibrosis. And these are baseline specimens from that study. It was done in 30 centers around the United States. This is using a narrower needle, but they took more pieces to give enough portal areas to fully assess fibrosis. And this is a sample from an unnamed center, Johns Hopkins. Not a bitch. That only radiologists do biopsies, and they don't do them well. And Hopkins has actually written a plethora of papers about how liver biopsy didn't seem to be that accurate in their hands relative to clinical outcomes. Guess what? They staged everyone wrong, because this is what they do. So that's a problem. You need to get sufficient material, just like any test. You, you wouldn't allow a patient, you're trying to diagnose pneumonia in a patient, you wouldn't allow a chest x-ray if the patient rotated and bent over because you couldn't see what you're trying to see. It's the same thing. Okay, we don't use liver biopsies very much anymore. At our peak, my center was doing 2,500 liver biopsies a year. Um, Last year, 2017, we did 252. So these tests, this test, has been replaced by other things. And so those other things that you're probably going to use primarily, but you need to understand the reason I take all this time to show you this is where did those tests come from? They're not independent. They're all based on trying to correlate with the liver vibes. So this is FibroScan, which is one brand. Yes, I used a brand name, but it's transient elastography. There's several types of transient elastography machines, but this is the one most commonly in use in the United States. Do most of you have access to transient elastography, show of hands? About half of you, looks like, have access to that. So in transient elastography, you have a probe, and it sends out a sound wave. And the sound wave causes a jiggle. And this is analogous to the way, when I was a kid, we made jello, right? So jello used to be made in a bowl, 
You pour jello powder into a bowl, you put in boiling water, you put it in the fridge. And a few hours later, it would solidify enough that it was something solid, not liquid. And if you tap the side of the bowl, it would jiggle across the top. That was always fun to do when you were a kid. But if you left it uncovered in the refrigerator for two or three days, the water would evaporate out of it and it would get stiffer. It's that same principle that's used in transient elastography. A liver with scar in it is stiffer and we measure stiffness using a unit called kilopascals. So that's the unit of measure that comes from transient elastography. And the actual report that comes out of the machine looks like this. If the sound wave takes a while to get back because there's a lot of jiggle, then you get a slope of return that looks like that. If it's really stiff, you get a slope of return that's more vertical. It comes back really quickly, like, like a ball bouncing off a wall instead of bouncing off a, a mat that's soft. And that comes out with a number in kilopascals, and these numbers give us an indication of the likelihood of cirrhosis. So a high number, more likely to be stiff, and stiff due to fibrosis being present, a very low number, no extra scar at all, that's a normal liver. And we use cutoffs. There's nothing magical about cutoffs. This also is a continuum, and a continuum of probability of being right. So in that patient that I just showed you that had a 33, that patient is cirrhotic. Absolutely, positively, that patient is cirrhotic. But in varying centers, people use a cutoff. 12.5 to 14 is most commonly used. There's not a right number. The higher your number, the more likely that patient is cirrhotic. And anything less than that, you may still have cirrhosis, but you're not sure, and it may be a mix of things. So we talk about F3 kind of between this 9.5 to 12.5 or 13 or 14. And that's advanced fibrosis. And below that is less fibrosis. In Ohio, we have to have F2 to get, to get drug for anyone. So we like to see people at least 7.5 or higher so that we feel confident that the the insurance companies will give us drug for our patient. And anything less than that is little or no fibrosis. So at least from a liver point of view, not clinically significant now. It doesn't mean they don't have a disease, and those patients should be treated. But when you try to restrict it like insurance companies do, this is one of the ways they do it. There's another method, MR elastography. It does, uses the same principle using an MR machine with fancy mathematical algorithms. It costs a fortune, um, about $3,000 a test. Do you have access to MR, any of you? MR elastography? Some of you do. So it's a little bit more accurate than uh, than the sound-based 
elastography mainly because it looks at a bigger portion of the liver. It's actually still, it's not sound based, but it's vibration based. Um, and it looks at a much larger portion of the liver, so it improves its overall diagnostic accuracy. Um, but uh, it's still hard to get. I don't have access to this in my center. We have one unit in all of Cincinnati serving two and a half million people that does MR elastography at Children's Hospital. And, uh, you know, so we do use it occasionally for patients with hemophilia, for example, where we want to feel pretty confident about what we're seeing and we don't want to biopsy. And uh, so when there's confusion, we get that study. There's also non-invasive biomarker tests, blood tests. And this is the original paper from FibroTest, which was developed in France by a hepatologist. And in the U.S., it's sold as FibroSure. So some of you may have access to FibroSure. It uses a proprietary algorithm and tests that are not routinely available. So you have to you order it as a bunch. They do the algorithm. They give you an answer of 0 to 1. And if you break it by metavir fibrosis stages, you can see that if you were trying to separate a cirrhotic F4 from a no liver disease F0, it works really well. But if you try to separate one stage from another because of the, the length of these lines, there's a lot of overlap and your confidence is not nearly as good. And the manufacturer says that cirrhosis is anyone who comes out on that test with a point score of 0.75, but frankly, 0.8 is much more accurate and when we use this test as an additional marker we tend to use point eight as our cutoff to say, yes, I feel confident that patient is cirrhotic. Now, there's also several tests that just use your everyday blood tests that you get on patients. The big ones in use are FIB4, APRI, and AAR, the AST to ALT ratio. Of those three tests, the most accurate is the FIB4. So that's the one I'm showing you. Um, it uses age, platelet count, AST, and ALT. It plugs them into a formula, but you don't have to be a math genius because if you go to your smartphone and you put in FIB4 calculator, you get a nice plug-in thing to put in those values, and it gives you a number. And if it's less than 1.45, the patient essentially doesn't have fibrosis or significant fibrosis. And if it's greater than 3.25, the patient has advanced fibrosis with a high probability. It's not perfect. It's messed up by certain things that uh, if a patient, for example, had a splenectomy, then their platelet count is sky high. Because again, these are, you need to look at the component parts and think of them in relation to our liver biopsy. Is there anything in here that actually tells you directly about, is there scar in the liver? And the answer is no, there isn't. What are we measuring? Age. The older you are and you have hep C, the more likely you are to have had progressive disease. So in a predictive model, being older makes you more likely to have fibrosis. 
Platelet count. Platelet count is a measure of portal hypertension. When blood can't flow through, through the liver, the first thing that happens is the spleen gets bigger. The spleen gets bigger, it takes out more platelets. Platelet count drops, and we use that as a surrogate for saying there must be scar present in the liver. ALT and AST, I already told you what those were. Those are markers of liver cell injury. So why the heck would that be useful in knowing if there's scar? Well, the more inflammation there is over time, years, the more likely you have are to have scar. But there's a really important takeaway from this. Once you cure the patient of their hep C, the inflammation goes away quickly. These tests normalize. Platelet count doesn't <clears throat> change. The spleen is still big. It's taking out platelets. The patient may get a year older in between. You cure them and then you follow them up again. This test becomes completely useless. And I cannot tell you over the years how many papers I've been asked to review where people write, the fibrosis went away in 30% of my patients. No! The ALT and AST normalized, and the number went down. That has nothing to do with the scar. So if you understand what those numbers mean, they give you some mark indication of what's going on, and it's a pretty good test for finding advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis in an infected patient. And after that, throw it out the door, because it can't be used to follow your patient. This just shows you a variety of different tests and that all of the tests are pretty good at the extremes. No fibrosis, cirrhosis, but in the middle, the misclassification rate rises significantly. The other thing to be aware of is that fibrosis is not the same in everyone. Disease progresses at different points. And when you first see a patient, they're often going to ask you, Am I going to die? That's actually the most common question. The answer is everyone dies. But am I going to die of liver disease? Well, the only predictor you have is the stage of liver disease they're at to tell you, gee, from the time we think you got infection till now, you're either a fast progressor or a slow progressor. Some patients, untreated HIV, for example, in the setting of HCV, HIV co-infection, progress really rapidly. We'll look at some data on that in the next slide quickly. And other patients progress very, very slowly. Why is that? Well, there's a variety of factors to what is associated with progression, including how does an individual patient scar? If you cut 10 people in this room with a standardized cut on their arm, some would have a big keloid with lots of effusive scar, and some would heal with almost no sign at all. People respond to injury differently in terms of scar formation. This is a study from Johns Hopkins. They did take a group of patients with very low fibrosis. And back when treatments weren't so good, they decided if your fibrosis level was low, we're not going to treat you. And we'll rebiopsy you in around three years. And so they did that. And in patients with HCV-HIV co-infection, 25% of patients 
advanced two stages in a three-year period. Those are fast progressors. We now know that it's critical to treat the HIV effectively, and that actually slows fibrotic progression. So what's the first thing you do in a co-infected patient? Usually you treat the HIV. Now, I mentioned that there are other liver diseases, and the one that's becoming more and more prominent because of the obesity epidemic, the other O, like opioid, but this is the obesity epidemic, is fat in the liver. So fatty liver is this picture. You can see it looks different than our other biopsies. All of these are white things, are fat globules, and they're sort of pushing the hepatocytes, squashing them out out of their normal space and filling that space with fat. And that's important for a number of reasons. Fat makes the cells more fragile. It increases their overall turnover rate, which can lead to scar. We use, if you have a fibro scan or transient elastography machine, it also gives you a measurement called CAP, Control Attenuation Parameter. And that parameter comes up with a number, and that number is related to the proportion of hepatocytes that are filled with fat. And the higher it is, the more likely you have fat with injury. So that's another important number that you might have available to you. And it's also important to know that even after you cure your hep C, the patient with a fatty liver may still have a fatty liver and still have liver injury, and now you need to start addressing the second liver disease. Over time, fat leads to NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis with inflammation, and you get fibrosis initially in this pattern, which is called chicken wire fibrosis, because it looks like when you put chickens into large coops, this is the kind of wire they use. Um, when I was growing up, everyone knew what chicken wire is, because I'm not sure people do. Um, and, or jello. Or jello. <laughs> and, uh, and you could see that this pattern of injury looked different than what I showed you previously for hep C. But over time, you still get this coalescence of scar and liver lobules surrounded by scar. So cirrhosis with or without fat. Some of these don't have as much fat in it. Like this one's probably only about 25% it doesn't mean that the fat actually goes away as the liver disease advances in patients with NASH. And there's scoring systems for this, and there are different scoring systems. This is the uh, NASH CRN scoring system. I'm not going to go into details about it, but you should be aware at least that, that there's a whole separate way of thinking about fatty liver disease as well. In the next few minutes, I'll finish up with complications of cirrhosis. So again, we've decided that, that a patient has advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. Blood flow gets altered. That leads to complications. Overall, patients want to know, what is my prognosis? So I like to think of liver disease as there are three separate clocks running. The first one is, I got an infection. How long will it take me to get to cirrhosis? And we already saw that, that that could be fast, as short as three to five years, 
as long as 45 or 50 years, but the median time is about 34 years from time of infection. That's the first clock. The second clock is when I am cirrhotic, what happens next? And the answer is about 5% per year will develop decompensated liver disease, meaning the signs and symptoms of end-stage liver disease. And about 1% per year on this line will develop liver cancer. So when a patient says, well, you just found I'm cirrhotic, what does that mean? You can't tell them what it means for them, but you can tell them that in 10 years, 30 to 50% will have decompensated liver disease. So if there were 100 people like you, up to nearly half will have decompensated disease in 10 years. At that moment, the third clock starts. The moment you have decompensated disease, and that's time to death of liver transplant. 50% of patients from decompensation will die or require transplant within three years. That's a sort of a fast clock at that point. So what is decompensation? It's any of these things. The appearance of ascites, which itself could then be complicated by hepatorenal syndrome, hepatic hydrothorax, or SPP. The development of hepatic encephalopathy. Bleeding varices, not appearance of varices. So lots of patients with cirrhosis have varices. Only a subset ultimately bleed. Or a coagulopathy which historically was defined as a PT greater than three seconds over control, but in the last 15 years, INR has replaced seconds over control as a unit you use, and people argue, I know, silly thing to argue over, but in my circles, people say 1.5 or 1.7 is the magic INR number for definition of decompensated disease. If you want to be conservative, call it 1.5, any, any INR over 1.5. So any one of those things indicates the patient now has decompensated disease. And that's going to have an impact on your treatment decisions in many ways, and also how you manage that patient. We use a couple of scoring systems. Some of you know the child scoring system, or child's pew, or child's Tracopew, depending on where you're from and who, which name do you like because it's associated with your institution, um, which includes looking at bilirubin albumin PT, whether or not there's hepatic encephalopathy and how bad it is, and the same thing for presence or absence of ascites. In general, compensated cirrhotics are have five to six points at our child's A, and decompensated our child's B or C. Why do you need to know that? We'll talk more about this, but, but these are still potentially treatable by you, and these you shouldn't touch. We also use MELD score. MELD score is more accurate for prediction of near-term outcomes. It's the model for end-stage liver disease. It uses bilirubin, creatinine, INR, and now there's meld sodium. It includes a fourth thing, the uh, 
the sodium level, and it's used to predict mortality and time for liver transplant. How does that work? Well, here's a patient. Numbers aren't terrible. Creatinine's up a little bit, 1.6. Billy's 1.4. INR's 1.6, so you would probably call that decompensated. But if you plug that into a smartphone, asking for MELD, you would find the score calculates to 17, and that person has an 18% chance of not being alive three months from now. So in cancer, someone with that level of survival is put into hospice. That's serious disease, yet this patient may be sitting in your office and look relatively asymptomatic with these numbers, and your first thought is, yeah, they're fine, and I found they have hep C, so I'm going to treat them. No, this is a patient that you should be worried about these numbers. So when do you refer? When do you call a hepatologist, call a transplant center? Any hepatic decompensation, first appearance of ascites, encephalopathy, or variceal bleeding, a MELD score greater than 10, or hepatocellular carcinoma. Now that does not mean that that you're going to make the call and the transplant center is going to say, oh, we'll transplant that patient next week. That patient may not get transplanted for two or three or four years, but that's when the transplant centers need to know about these patients and start thinking about their overall optimal management in conjunction with you if you're managing the patient. So these are kind of the take-home things you should take away about why I need to know about liver disease, because you need to know when do I call for help. I mentioned HCC, that's a reason you call the transplant center. We recommend ultrasound every six months. It's important to know that ultrasounds are very subjective and experience matters. So we frequently see patients who get an ultrasound done at small hospitals and they miss liver cancers. Um, AFP, alpha-fetoprotein, is a blood test you can do. It is, as part of screening in cirrhotics, not recommended by the AASLD, but most hepatologists in the U.S. use it. Um, if it goes up, even in the setting of a negative ultrasound, it's an indication to think about other types of imaging. We'll talk more later about what that might be. So in summary, HCV is also a liver disease. Whenever you see a patient, you should be asking, is advanced fibrosis present or not? That should just be automatic question for every patient that you see. And if yes, it's time to start doing some other things because this patient needs surveillance for varices by EGD looking for evidence of ascites long before you could find it on exam, and regular screening at six-month intervals for hepatocellular carcinoma. And contact your hepatologist early when any sign of decompensation is present, or even if you have a question. In my experience, people are worried about bothering someone. I would much rather have a call and say nothing to worry about 
than not hear from someone until they've been getting tapped for five months and someone says they're in our ICU uh, on pressors. Do you think that maybe you should see this patient now? That's a bad time to get to see the patient for the first time. So I'm going to stop there. I'm happy to take any questions and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, please don't be shy about making calls and uh, after today you should all have my contact information. I talk to people from all over the country and I'm happy to take a call at any time. So, question? Yes? Um, some primary care setting for, um, for clinic and personal personnel. Based on the testing that we have, fiber scan and we also have fiber shore. Based on these tests, at which point do you recommend referring? Like, fiber scan is a little bit more clear to me, fiber shore is kind of not clear to me at which point they refer to the pathologist or clinic where she So, you don't from both of those tests, they're going to tell you advanced fibrosis, cirrhosis, or not, with some degree of accuracy. And I don't mean to imply that you can't treat those patients as long as they don't have decompensating disease. I know the word cirrhosis sounds scary, but you can treat cirrhotic patients, and they do actually very well with some of the regimens that we have. You'll see the more data on that in a little bit. but, uh, but you do need to know if there's any sign of decompensation, so you need to start to move on to the other tests that I mentioned, getting an EGD, getting the ultrasound done. And I would typically, usually try to do those things before initiating treatment in a cirrhotic patient. But, but it doesn't mean you can't treat the patient. You don't need to send that patient automatically to the hepatologist. <laughs> Again, there's not enough of us to treat even all the cirrhotics in the U.S. This might be a silly question. So I understand that the gold standard for identifying fibrosis is biopsy, right? In the clinical setting, we often see like a fibrosis identified by imaging, like that. That's the incidental imaging. That is it. And then had a CT and a certain Right. Cirrhosis cannot be yeah. diagnosed on imaging. Period. That's, yeah. that's one of your test questions. <laughs> so. If you correlate, though, you know, if you correlate where, where there are studies where you're looking, let's say, something seen on the ultrasound or yeah. imaging, and if you look back at the biopsy level to other tests, yes. what level? So when a, patient, when a patient has signs of significant portal hypertension and large spleen, the spleen is 18 centimeters, there appears to be dilation of the portal vein, and the liver appears shrunken and nodular, the odds are pretty darn good that that's a cirrhotic patient. Mm -hmm. That's very late-stage cirrhosis, and in fact, the majority of asymptomatic patients you'll see in your practices, which amazingly, and other than the, the young kids who have recently gotten infected in the baby boomers, will account for 25 to 30% of all baby boomers seen in your practices are going to be cirrhotic but will not have most of those features. They're, they're going to, it's going to say spleen is 11 to 12 centimeters within upper limits of normal. <laughs> and there might be a coarseness to the liver, epigenic coarseness, consistent with chronic liver disease, 
or cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not helpful. That, that doesn't give you the information. But it reimburses them exceptionally well. What's that? I think it reimbursed very nicely. They do. (laughs) They do. To say nothing, they get paid 300 bucks each time. But the one fallout out of this, you know, when we see such a reading, we kind of start thinking about maybe we need to do testing. I've seen a patient Mm. who was on a CT scan and they called it out. Oh, absolutely. 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 That's certainly one pathway that someone gets scanned for something else and they're found to have evidence of portal hypertension and eventually someone gets around to the liver. But honestly, every week in my clinic, there are patients that had imaging for something, my belly hurt, they get a CT scan and someone sees a big spleen, they get sent to a hematologist because the platelets are low, they get a bone marrow biopsy, and then the hematologist says, I don't think it's my organ, did you think about looking at the liver? That's crazy. That's, you know, platelets go down, and, and so it's, you should usually think about the liver before a hematologic association with that. Most of those patients don't have lymphomas. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Is there, should we take a bathroom break for a I couple of minutes? Should we? Or? we are running behind. I know, but it's also people have been drinking oh, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> oh, after? Yeah. Okay. Oh. But you can do it after. Yeah.